Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Michaela Starace, a dermatologist who is an assistant professor at the Department of Medical and Surgical Science at the University of Bologna in Italy. For those not familiar, it's a gorgeous city with amazing culture. Michaela received her medical degree from the University of Bologna, which incidentally is one of the world's oldest medical schools, and before completing a PhD in dermatological sciences at the same institution. She's involved with numerous medical professional groups and is a founding member of the International Nail Society. Michaela is the author of an astonishing 178 papers published in both Italian and international journals and 25 book chapters. She's also responsible for the organization of the National Alopecia Areata Day in Italy. In her spare time, Michaela, and it's astonishing that she has any, she spends time with her family, used to practice free climbing, brave lady, and enjoys the south of Italy for boating holidays. Who doesn't enjoy any of Italy for any holiday? Welcome to the EMJ podcast, Dr. Michaela Storacci. What a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for the wonderful introduction. No one in my life introduced myself in this in such way. So well, <laughs> you, des- you deserve it. And I'm, I am a huge, as we were talking before, I'm a huge fan of your country. I adore Italian food, Italian wine, Italian opera, Ita- everything Italian, frankly. So let's kick off. What, what led you into medicine and specifically sparked your interest in dermatology and your specialty within dermatology? In my history of my passion, in this case, uh, with the medicine in general, I started very, when I was very young. Uh, my mom told me that uh, when I was uh, four years old, I decided to do a medical doctor. So I never changed my, my decision. And until now, if I look at my background, I say this is uh, my, the right decision for me. And dermatology is arrived later, absolutely. And it started with uh, um, a consultation when uh, during the School of Medicine, you have to do a, a small, uh, a small um, part of your day directly in the different clinics. And I started to love it. And this love is uh, directly for care and air disease. And in this case, I was very lucky because I know one, the first professor that uh, gave me this love, it is a Professor Antonella Tosti, and then my special mentor, Professor Bianca Maria Piracini, that uh, grew with me. This is a very great passion. So I just always like to know people's origins and how often it's, you know, it's one inspirational professor or two inspirational professors who just say, yeah, look, I want to, I aspire to be like you. So let's dig into uh, into the topic. Last month, you published an article, or in the last few months, you published an article entitled Adverse Events in Patients Treated with Jack Inhibitors for Alopecia Areata, a systematic review. Now, although our audience are primarily medical professionals, some are just interested members of the lay public. So please set the scene, describe the hair loss of alopecia areata, what role JAK inhibitors play, and what the adverse events your paper identified, what those adverse events were. Um, so, uh, alopecia areata is an autoimmune hair disease that affects uh, 
person that are predisposed of this autoimmunity and this can be affected in different parts of the scalp in a different degree but also other parts so like eyelashes, eyebrow, nail and so on. For this reason in the last year we reconsidered this disease not only a scalp disorder but a general autoimmune disorder and this, uh, this uh, change gives uh, very good attention to this disease and it is a uh, uh, affect also with the, the type of this drug. The JAK inhibitors are the new era of the therapy of alopecia areata. And until now, we have a lot of therapy, but they are not described as a guideline. This is the real problem of alopecia areata. It is a very frequent uh, disease, hair disease. It affects 2-3% of mondial population. All, the, all, over this, all over the world. And until now, we not have a real good standard guideline. But then finally arrived this drug that arrived directly on the pathogenesis of the alopecia areata. It is the first important role of JAK inhibitor because we arrived directly where is the cause of the hair disease. Finally, there is a, a third era because until now the other therapy in uh, some cases and a lot of cases not has enough result and with this therapy finally especially for the severe form of alopecia areata we have a new possibility as uh, every type of drugs there is uh, the positive effect but also some side effect the side effect of jack inhibitors are a few are very easy to, to recognize, to management, and especially it is an enhanced frequency of the infection disease, a recurrent infection disease that the, already the patient are affected by. So it is typical to have maybe more episode of sinusitis or cystitis and so on. So not so, they are very easy to manage this, this, this side effect. Uh, in compare with the other side effect of the oldest therapy as a steroid, because the use of corticosteroid is a very great side effect, or the other important systemic uh, drugs as uh, methotrexate and so on. So it is a new era for this patient. It is a wonderful era for them. How common is alopecia areata? And you mentioned it's autoimmune nature. So would it be right to assume that women are affected more than men because women do tend to get more of the autoimmune-related diseases? Uh, no, in alopecia areata, it's, uh, it is an autoimmune disorder, but it is not a, a privilege of uh, the sex. It uh, can affect uh, both male and female in the equal way and uh, also in any type of age. It can be at the birth, as a 19 years old, it's not possible to know the course and the age that it started to appear. And it affects, generally, there is not any study about epidemiology, epidemiology of alopecia areata, but in general, it affects 2-3% of the world population. Okay, so it's a significant, uh, significantly common condition. A few years back, you uh, were a co-author on a paper on health-related quality of life in patients affected by hair loss due to three conditions, alopecia areata, androgenetic alopecia, and telogen effluvium, magnificent name, where there's more than the usual daily hair loss and thinning of the hair. Your paper looked at the role of personality traits 
and psychosocial anxiety. Talk to us about that, please. This was a very important uh, paper about especially to understand the role of psychological aspect in hair disease. And it's important because when we visit a patient, we have to reflect how we approach. Because at the end of the article, we understand that in the different approach of the different medical doctor can depend also the, the, the management of the patient and the, the response to the therapy. Not the efficacy of the therapy, but the acceptance of the, of the patient to the therapy, to the compliance. If you can compliance the patient, the patient compliance you. This is the real goal. And uh, at the end, especially in alopecia reata, we gave a very important role of the psychological aspect in this disease. Not because alopecia reata is a stressful disease, never, absolutely, the stress is not implicated in this, patholo in this uh, the pathogenesis of this disease. But no one is happy to lose their hair. And for this reason, we have to look at this and we have to consider the psychological aspect when you have no hair on your scalp. Because it is a physical, but also a psychological. And we have to compliance this type of patient. We can have uh, important to give enough uh, importance to the history, to the, the life of the patient with this disease. This is important. And we understand if you have a good doctor, if you have uh, not only to resolve the problem, but to have a all completely view of the patient, you can receive a very good compliance from me, from uh, the patients. Fascinating. So, because um, my, my question was going to be, you know, is it just not a result? If you're losing your hair, that's going to make you anxious. So in, in 2020, you co-authored a paper entitled Female Androgenic Alopecia, an update on diagnosis and management. Can you speak about this condition and the recommendations yourself and your fellow authors decided upon to treat this patient group? Female androgenetic alopecia is one of the most uh, frequent uh, hair diseases. And uh, as you told before, females uh, are very anxious about hair disease because it's not easy as a man to raise the scalp and to go on. And it is important to have a guideline to follow in any case of severity, degree, and pattern manifestation. In this uh, paper, we try to, to put all the important points when you visit a patient, a female patient with androgenetic alopecia, first of all, to understand if this disease is only a hair disease, so only an affected by the scalp, or it is maybe a sign of a more important disease is the hyperandrogenism that is affect a different part of the body. After this, you can decide that the therapy, the best therapy, local, or systemic therapy, even if, if you have maybe other diseases as a problem of hirsutism, obesity, acne, and so on. This is completely different, the approach to the patient. So it's important, the different step also to, to, uh, to select the right therapy on the clinical manifestation of the disease because we have different patterns, but on the other side also they uh, confirm the diagnosis and the, the select of the therapy with the use of trichoscopy.
Tricoscopy is a non-invasive method to diagnose this disease and to follow the patient during the time, during the therapy. This is the most important. And you can select the right therapy. It's a very important guideline in this type of disease that is one of the most frequent. So you just mentioned trichoscopy, and I was going to ask you about that from reading through your various papers, um, to know if hair loss is, shall I say, normal or abnormal. And basically, for people not familiar, it uses a magnifying scope to look at the scalp and hair, right? So can you tell us more broadly its role as a diagnostic aid and some of the other common and maybe one or two really rare and interesting causes of hair loss? Yes, tricoscopy is today the most important non-invasive method for the diagnosis of hair disease. You can look at with the high magnification, absolutely like a very big microscope, your scalp, where you can see the dot, so the type of follicular hostia, the shaft, the type of the hair. You can look at the vessel on the scalp, the desquamation, any type of uh, any sign. And you can follow some steps at the end to arrive at the diagnosis. It is not invasive, so this is important because uh, for this reason, it's also very important in pediatric population, where it is difficult. Before it, we have to biopsy, so in this case, a surgical approach, so invasive method, to do a lot of diagnosis. In, uh, in addition, the use of trichoscopy is very important to look at the follow-up. Because the hair disease has a very important uh, defect, the long time for the response to therapy. I always told that uh, the, the hair are very long to respond. It. You, know, you, you can't expect any result after a few months. And for this reason, when you look at a lot of patients, it is very difficult to remember every patient and every starting patient. So you can look at it with a picture, an objective picture, and you can pair the same picture after six months. And a lot of patients, because it passes a lot of time, arrive in your consultation and say, no, I'm worse and absolutely. When they look at the picture, they say, oh my God, I didn't remember who his, uh, what his, uh, how he is, sorry, my first picture, my first starting before the therapy. And they are very happy to continue the therapy because in a lot of cases, you have to, to use the therapy for a long time in hair disease. It is not easy to continue to have the compliance of the patients. So when I was studying medicine, I was fascinated by how signs on the nails could help us diagnose other diseases, uh, finger clubbing, pitting, splinter hemorrhages, and so on. One of your key research areas is disorders of the nails, and you've previously talked about how onycoscopy can facilitate their clinical diagnosis. So first of all, tell us about the process of onycoscopy. Tell us about onycodynia, painful nails, and maybe a few really interesting nail signs of disease. I, I love this kind of stuff. And as in here, you can use the same method in a nail uh, disease. And again, onycoscopy is a non-invasive method to have enhanced visualization of a lot of disease. And some cases can be diagnostic, other cases you can use only to have this high magnification. Uh, it is uh, wonderful because some nail sign in uh, onycoscopy or not can be a spy of systemic disease. 
And it's important to diagnostic this disease as soon as possible because it can be a genetic or congenital disorder. And thanks to the look, uh, the visualization of the nail, you can suspect it. One is clubbing, for example, absolutely, because it is a problem of maybe of especially cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, and maybe the patient not have any other consultation in this field before us. Another possibility can be, for example, uh, nail patella syndrome, where the last, where the most important point is the nail because the, it uh, has a triangular shape of the lunula. And if you diagnose this disease, you can uh, uh, immediately ask about an ocular uh, consultation and a, a renal consultation. And because it's a spy, a very important disease, you can do only with this uh, uh, visualization. And uh, you, um, lastly, in the last uh, period, uh, we look at the patient with uh, this uh, painful name and uh, the term dinia is the to, to um, specify a painful sensation in different parts of the body. It is a similar trichodynia is on the scalp. Uh, uh, and then the one, uh, the, my mentor, this co-author in this publication, Professor Piracini, coined this term, onicodynia. That is a painful name. In this case, the, the lady reported this a painful sensation after use of a cosmetic procedure, the gel, because there is an aggressive, in this case, removal of the gel on the nail. That usually, when you are a very good practice of this removal, there is a no problem with any sensation. So you can see with onicosco because impossible with only look at the hair with a naked hair to look at this glomus aspect of this irregular glomus aspect on the onicoderma layer that is on the typical on the nail bed, and you can look at this and you can recognize together with the painful sensation this type of disease. So uh, thank you for that. It's fascinating. Uh, you're a founding member of the International Nail Society. Tell us about the inspiration for this society, what you hope to achieve, and maybe an interesting paper from a recent meeting. Um, we started many years ago, and I'm a member of, uh, of both, uh, I'm a board member of both of the Council Nail Disease Disorder, that is the USA Nail Society, and European Nail Society. Most of them decided uh, to, to connect or together to create an international society where the two societies are together. At the end, we have the same members, absolutely, but it's the necessity especially to create the guideline for important nail disease. In fact, after the creation of this international, we started to publish one paper about nail lichen planus and nail psoriasis, that are the most important inflammatory nail disease. So um, you're a principal investigator in a study entitled Atopic Dermatitis in Adolescence, Analysis of Quality of Life, which began in uh, September 2022, I believe. Can you tell us about this study and anything you might have discovered thus far? Uh, it's an older. 
paper is uh, older, but it's important uh, because in this study, this, uh, this started with a group that uh, here in my hospital uh, performed atopic dermatitis. It's not my field because it's not hearing aid. And they start especially uh, the, the group of my colleague as Dr. Neri and Dr. Gurioli. They decided to understand if there is any uh, probability, any trigger effect that can induce the, uh, the different type of atopic dermatitis in adolescents. And uh, they noticed, especially there, uh, that it's at the beginning, in the past, uh, maybe the, use the food are not uh, a site, are not uh, a trigger event in this type of disease. So I recall having seen a patient with a subungual melanoma and another with a squamous cell carcinoma below the nail. I think those are quite common, no? Um, earlier this year, you published a paper entitled Diagnosis and Surgical Treatment of Benign Nail Unit Tumors. Educate us about this condition, how it presents in its treatment, and, and also let us know how often you see malignant tumors under the nails. Fortunately, subungual nail melanoma and squamous cell carcinoma of the nail are not so frequent because they are very aggressive and malignant, especially if you not recognize, recognize them as soon as possible. In fact, they, as all the tumors, malignant tumors, there is a, a passage from maybe inside you until the invasive way. And in this case, the surgical approach it is completely different. If you have an in-situ melanoma of the nail uh, or an SCCC, you can remove only the uh, phalanx unit. If you move versus an invasive way, you can remove uh, until the phalanx. So the approach is different. On the other side, there are a lot of benign nail tumor that in a recent paper, very recent, we published with the help of one of the most important histopathologist colleague from USA, Professor Adam Rubin, and a very important group of surgical approach of Brazil, Dr. Nilton Di Chiacchio, and both father and son. They are very nice. We describe the clinical the onycoscopy, and then the histopathology and the surgical approach of the, all the most important. Um, some tumors, some benign tumors are easy to recognize thanks to uh, the onycoscopy. That in a lot of them recognize specific sign on the nail with this height magnification. One of these, one example is, for example, onychopapilloma, where you can have this longitudinal retronychia with, uh, with a boob shape on the lunula and the subungual filiform mass on the distal part of the nail. So if you look at this sign, you can do This is an onychopapilloma. This is a benign lesion. But onychopapilloma in the reason here describes some variants. One of these is a pigmented. And in this case, if you have a pigmented onychopapilloma, it is very similar to a melanonychia. When you have a melanonychia in adult, you have to think about a malignant lesions melanoma. So it arrives in the differential diagnosis versus benign versus malignant. And you have, in this case, to remove it. In other case, it's when you have a painful onychopapilloma. And in this case, it is a very recent described in two papers it's possible to have a malignant variant. It's never described until a few months ago. So you have to remove. For this reason, this paper is very important to recognize what is benign and to differentiate what is, in the other case, malignant 
and it requires biopsy or surgical removal. So it is very nice because also we describe all the steps to have a very good result with the surgical approach in these tumours. So thanks for that. Changing uh, topic slightly, the, the doctor-patient relationship is so important to any kind of diagnostic and therapeutic uh, regime. And how we speak to our patients are, is critical. You wrote a paper titled Soothing with One's Words, Positive Doctor-Patient Communication Modulates Post-Surgery Pain and Quality of Physical Activity in Patients Undergoing Nail Surgery. Talk to us about this, please. Yes, the same group of the psychological aspect of hair disease uh, with the same group, we decide to understand again how the communication can be very important in the approach, in the explanation of a surgical approach. Again, if you have a good communication, a good uh, compliance with your patient, it's easy to perform surgical approach and also to, um, to reduce the, the painful sensation maybe during the anesthesia and also the compliance after the surgery and the good approach with the medication. This is important. At the end, I think it is real. It is true in each disease, in each field, for any doctor. If you can spend time to explain the patient, the procedure, the post-operative stage, everything, you can have the compliance of the patient. It requires time. It requires patience, absolutely. But I think it is the only way to have a very good relationship with your patients. So, frankly, Michaela, it's, it's important in, in all clinical interactions. And I, I think we, we see that in, you know, in, in my specialty as well. So tell us, broadly speaking, what are some of the innovations in dermatology in your area of expertise, which have you particularly excited? I'm particularly excited because in the last years, we tried to put, first of all, with the dermoscopy, in my field is here, in a dermoscopy, absolutely. It started the idea to create uh, uh, techniques uh, that can be as much as possible non-invasive to arrive at the diagnosis. This is, uh, the, I think, the, the important of, uh, of, this, of, uh, of our fields. We start with dermoscopy, but we, we move to confocal microscopy, to optical choreography. And now there is finally also the study also in the skin, but I wrote a paper last month about in artificial intelligence. In, in general, in disease, I wrote only about hair disease. It's, I think it is the new era, and I think it is the most important uh, new study. Try to use as as possible, non-invasive method to follow the patient, to do the diagnosis to the patient, and not to arrive in invasive way when to arrive when it is strictly necessary. I think it is this is the most important point in the last year. And what enthusiasm me because I believe in it to create less discomfort for the patient to arrive at the, the, the diagnosis. So following on from that, and finally, a question I ask of all my guests, if you were granted three wishes for the future of healthcare in your specialty, what would they be? First of all, collaboration. I think uh, it is better if you have a good collaboration with your colleague, 
with your fellows, with your colleague, international colleagues. In fact, I wrote in the last year a lot of paper with the, a lot of colleagues in the different field. I think only in this way we can create a very important, very good work, a very good group of work. So I, the most important is this. Also, when I did some very nice play at the end of the year and they asked you what you can expect in the next year, collaboration. This is the first important. Then try to, my, in my, uh, my, my personal, only personal, try to put the right way to, con to share work and family. Because in my position, it's not easy to create and it's important to give enough time to, to career, to work, to study, to science, but also to your family. And in some cases, it's very difficult to, to have this possibility. And third, but it's not the least, uh, knowledge. I would like to, I try always to share all my knowledge with my fellow. And I hope they are very happy to, to have it and to use this knowledge with their knowledge to be bigger than me. <laughs> I must admit that it always gave me great pride when one of my trainees looked like they were going to be a technically better surgeon, a better doctor, a better academic, a better teacher than I was. I thought I'd done my job if that was the case. Thanks so much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank you for being with us today and sharing your time and knowledge. Dr. Michaela Storacci, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored and proud to be here. And thank you for everything and for your enthusiasm about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode and like us on social media. We'll have another fantastic episode for you next week, and there's a bunch of them in the archives. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. And until next time, stay safe. Stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>